never mentioned once. God is very alive and active, and it's insinuated that prayer goes along with the fasting. But because it's not mentioned, it's because God is working in the midst of even when people aren't necessarily seeking him or saying his name, it doesn't eliminate his presence. You can invoke the name of God, and that's a good thing, and there are layers to that. But whether you invoke his name or not, he's here. And providence is the quality and divinity of which mankind bases the belief in a benevolent intervention in human affairs and the affairs of the world. Benevolent intervention by a supreme being, by God. It's a general term, providence. But in this case, and we understand, the unseen and unmentioned Lord, God Jehovah, uh, is acting on behalf of his people. So, introduction of this is that Israel's in exile still in Babylon, not Babylon now, but now it's Persia, because Persia, media Persians, took over Babylon. And by this time, as well, somewhere in this time period, the Jews have been released to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the city, but only 50,000 tops go. So there's a whole lot of people, maybe a million and a half or two million people, that do not return. We don't know the exact timing, so we're not sure um, um, people were kind of streaming into Jerusalem over the course of time, but a lot of people are still in this other empire in the east. Persia, today, it's very simple to figure out what Persia is. Up until like a 1950-something, a certain country that we all know really well right now called Iran was called the Kingdom of Persia. It's the Persian Empire or the, the controlling force of that. And it's a place where an enemy rose up to destroy the Jews. Coincidence? I think not. <laughs> okay, so um, Israel's in, there in, in Persia, but God had promised that if you seek the peace where you are, if you wait for me and I'll bless you there, and then you can return someday. But even though these people haven't returned, they have hope. But in chapter 1 and chapter 2, we have this. The king, who also could be called Xerxes, Ahasuerus here in my Bible, he reigned over 127 provinces, and uh, I'm not going to read every verse. I'm just going to highlight some things for you. He ha- throws a huge party at his summer palace, and he throws this huge party over the course of a six-month period of time. It says in here, 180 days, he has this festivity going on as a general thing. But then he has a seven-day party in, ch- in verse 7 with royal wine in abundance according to the generosity of the king. And he's feeling rather generous. <laughs> And so he's pouring out, the wine is flowing, and when wine flows, words flow. When wine flows, am, am I saying, oh, nobody, you can't drink, you can't have alcohol. There's nothing in the New Testament that says you can't have alcohol. But it's interesting, when wine flows, a lot of things flow. I've never heard, I was at this, this party, and everybody was drinking, I, drinking, you know, and just really great things happened. <laughs> it, was, it was holy, it was healthy, and good stuff happened. But you almost every day hear about bad stuff happening from being drunk. You know, the scripture says, a drunken man is a, not the scriptures. <laughs> My wife told me this from another book. <laughs> I gotta be, you're supposed to be here to correct me on that. <laughs> a drunken man is at the mercy of his enemies. So yeah, I mean, we, we don't, we're not here to forbid alcohol. We're not here to make a rule. But isn't, a drunken man is at the mercy of his enemies. You know. Well, the king has a, he has a harem. 
This is ancient Persia, and this is not that God says this is a wonderful thing. God has an ordained pattern for man. One man, one woman, one life together. I know that it hasn't happened in the world. Just like when Adam and Eve were in the garden and they were to have a perfect life there, that didn't stay perfect. Man falls short of the glory of God. Stuff happens. Things go wrong. Some of us here have suffered from that directly. Some of us indirectly. All of us are saddened by what we've lost in so many realms of life. Some of us are so thankful for what we haven't lost in that regard. We're not here to judge or condemn each other, but we sure point to the fact that I, I want to show you in here, in the story, additionally, that one man, one woman, one life, there's something about that. But we'll get to that in a minute. So he throws this party, and he says in this chapter, let's bring out my queen, because he's got a harem, he's got wives, concubines, but he's got a queen. And she's gorgeous, and he loves her, but he's also drunk. And he's, he says, bring out Vashti, my wine. She's holding the thing with the women. And bring her out to dance in front of these guys. This isn't going to be a, uh, she's going to do ballet, and they're going to really appreciate the arts. This is going to be, he wants her to dance lewdly, perhaps even, some people say nakedly. We don't know for sure, but we know it's not a good picture. A bunch of drunk men watching a beautiful woman dance doesn't sound like a healthy, holy thing. And she refuses. And his guys, his, 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 he's furious. And you're going to see this man is always rash. Quick. And, of course, he's got these guys. And they basically say to him, listen, king, you've got to handle this quick because as you go, goes the kingdom. None of us will be able to go home and control our homes if Vashi doesn't listen to you. They had really good intentions. Uh, and so... Um, you know, you know, so he makes an edict and signs it and seals it as a law with his signet ring. The, the ring that he has has a seal, of the, not the seal of his personality or his even personal authority, but the authority of the nation of Persia. It's the law of the Medes and the Persians that he seals this with, that she's got to go bye-bye and never see him again and be gone. And so that's what he does. And in chapter 2, though, verse 1, he's, his wrath subsides, his anger, and he remembers Vashti, what she'd done and what she'd been decreed against her, and he's really sad. But he can't call her back because he's made a law and a rule, and he stood up in front of everybody and said, she's gone. He wants Vashti back. He wants his bride back. He wants his queen back. He's got a harem of ladies they are going to go and get him other people, but you see there's something in him that realizes that there is supposed to be a soulmate. Even for a guy that has all this stuff and all this freedom that the world would call, what a, what a great deal for a man who wants to be chauvinistic and self-important and feed his flesh. No, there's no happiness. You know, when you are self-important and when you make it all about you, you can never be fulfilled. It's an impossible thing. It's why people destroy themselves trying. Because life isn't about you fulfilling yourself. It's about loving God and letting him fulfill you and loving other people. Well, anyway, that's not his whole point and purpose here. But in chapter 2, um, I think we... Let me see if I'm up to speed where you are. 
So he, so, oh, I know what I was going to say. So what does he do? His, his, his servants come to him. The guys who told him to get rid of her now have another brilliant idea, but it is good because God uses it because God is sovereign. They call Steve Harvey and say, let's do a Miss Persia contest. <laughs> Thank you for laughing. At first service, I thought, these guys have never seen a TV or an Internet. Okay, and which is probably a good thing. <laughs> but uh, I said, this is on you, not me, because it's a great joke. Anyway, uh, so tell us about, read verses, she's going to read 5 through 10, Ruth is, and tell us about this contest and about what's happening here as she saw it. Now in Shushan the palace, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, <clears throat> the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captives who had been carried away with Jehoiakim, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. And he brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother, and the maid was fair and beautiful, whom Mordecai, when her father and mother were dead, took for his own daughter. So it came to pass, when the king's commandment and his decree were heard, and when many maidens were gathered together unto Shushan, the palace, to the custody of Hegai, um, that Esther was brought also unto the king's house, to the custody of Hegai, keeper of the women. And the maiden pleased him, and she obtained kindness from him, and he speedily gave her ointments for beautification, with such things as belonged to her, and seven maidens who were suitable to be given to her, out of the king's house, and he removed her and her maids unto the best place of the house of the women. Esther had not revealed her people, nor her kindred, for Mordecai had charged her that she should not make it known. Okay. So my thought was that when you get several women together, and of course these are all beauty pageant winners, um, they are all stunningly gorgeous, that women become catty. <laughs> I'm not saying this. I didn't even know she was going to say that. I didn't even know she was going to say this. I know this firsthand. We had somebody stunningly beautiful come into the office when I tempt for the state. And I want to tell you, she was stunning. And we all just were shocked by how beautiful this girl was. And she worked for us, but she also was modeling at night and doing a movie. Her father was very wealthy and very politically placed. And so she came to our office, and the havoc that this girl wreaked was unbelievable. So I looked up the definition of caddy. <laughs> Webster's New World Dictionary says, of cats, like a cat, spiteful, mean, subtly malicious. So I looked up malicious, and malicious was showing malice. So I looked up malice. Malice, active ill will. Desire to harm others. Spite. So then I looked up spite. A mean or evil feeling toward another, characterized by the inclination to hurt or humiliate. Mm. And I thought of this as we're reading through Esther and the fact that the chief of the, um, of the eunuchs, she found favor with him. That she must have been very humble and very kind and very gracious and not seeking the most that she could get to step on the others to be the best. And he not only gave her extra ointments, he gave her seven servants and then moved her to the best place, away from all the cattiness, away from all the nonsense, so that she could be trained by him and ready when she um, would be called. 
favor from the Lord. Thank. Give her a big hand. <laughs> Thank you, Ruth. So what you're saying to us, Ruth, then, is men have their problems and women have their problems. Is that fair? Everybody has problems, tendencies, don't we? And, uh, you know, these women were going to be put aside and only one's going to become the queen. And, of course, what happens is Esther is chosen to become queen. Meanwhile, her uncle Mordecai, he's raised her. Her name, Hadassah, is what our English term is Myrtle. And today, Myrtle, you, how many, is it the famous name to be named to babies this year? Not really, but there was a time when it was. Esther is the Persian word for star, Eshtar, Istar, Esther. And so that was her Persian name, but her Jewish name was Hadassah. And, um, and, uh, and she had her Persian name. And so there she is, and uh, she finds this favor as we've been turned. Meanwhile, Mordecai stand, steps outside the, by the gates of the city, meaning where the leaders meet and, and such. He walks back and forth and is very faithful to hear about and keep an eye on Esther from a distance. He can't see her. He can't get close to her. Uh, and the king doesn't know anything about their Jew- Jewishness, as we read. But while he just so happens to be around, he hears two of the king's servants Bigthan and Teresh talking about how they want to kill the king. And he, he hears about that. Verse 21 of chapter 2. In those days while Mordecai sat with the king's gate, two of the king's eunuchs, Bigthan and Teresh, doorkeepers, became furious and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. They want to kill him. They're not going to rough up the king and then let him go. Do you understand that? Okay. So the matter became known to Mordecai who told Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. And they inquire, goes on to say they inquire about it, and what happens is, is they find out it's true, they verify it, and the king has these two guys hanged. End of story. Then chapter 3, something else happens. And in chapter 3, enter the villain Haman. Oh, you got to, if you're going to do it, do it. Enter the villain Haman. <laughs> you shudder me. His name means magnificent, but he's anything but that. He is, a, he is an Amalekite. It says, so, um, verse 1, After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadetha, the Agagite, yeah, and advanced him and set him in the seat above all the princes who were with him. Chief of staff. Chief of staff for the king. And this guy is, uh, because it says he was an Agagite, which means another way of saying, to keep it brief, Amalekite. Exodus 17, the Amalekites came against Israel in the wilderness. That's when Moses' hands were lifted up by Aaron and Hur. They were a perpetual enemy, sought to destroy Israel. In Deuteronomy 25, God says you shall be at war with them perpetually and destroy them. Get, they're going to try to destroy you forever. You must get rid of them. And in 1 Samuel 15 is where God sends Saul to go destroy the Amalekites who are doing wickedly. And I know that's Old Testament stuff, but that's the way it was. And... Um, and they're perpetually at war with Israel. Well, he's the top advisor to the king, and the king's new queen is a Jew. What will happen? Haman comes out, and everybody bows to him. But Mordecai will not bow to this guy. Why not? Because he didn't like his face? No, because Mordecai, he honors the king. I mean, he protected the king. But he knows that Haman is an Agag guy, an Amalekite. He knows that this man is an enemy to Israel, and he's not to bow to him or to accept his role and to, to be, embrace this guy and certainly not bow to him. Well, when Haman saw in verse 5 that Mordecai did not bow or pay him homage, Haman was filled with wrath. 
He could be called Caddy as well. (laughs) But he disdained to lay hold on Mordecai alone, for they had told him of the people of Mordecai. Instead, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus and the people of Mordecai. Maybe he knows his own uh, sense of of, um, animosity for his people to the Jews. And so he wants to destroy, you know, he wants to destroy them all. Somebody in Persia wants to destroy all the Jews. Somebody in Iran wants to destroy all the Jews. Some things never change. You know, so the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman because Haman comes to the king and says, there's a despicable people in this country. They don't pay their taxes. They are always subversive. They have weird things they do, and you need to get rid of them so we can all live in peace. So set up a date with me to go take anybody who wants to help me, and we'll just get rid of these guys, and we'll bring a bunch of it into the treasury, all their property and stuff, and we'll share the treasury with the people that help us destroy them, and you'll be done with it, and the king will prosper, and the land will be peaceful. And the king rashly, like he said, go get, get, get rid of Ashti. Now he takes his ring and hands it to Haman. <laughs> I almost forgot we were going to do And so Haman takes his ring. He gives his authority. He gives his authority to this man. And this man, he's yielded his authority and his responsibility to an evildoer. People really sometimes quickly turn over the authority that they have in their life and the responsibility they have in their life. They, turn, they let other people, they take a, a ring and stick it in their nose and let them pull them around and lead them. You know, we're not... You know, and people would think that of you because you're a Christian, you go to church, you listen to a pastor, you listen to the Bible, so now you're just, you know, your job is to read the scriptures yourself and see if the things I say are so. We're not here, we don't control your life. That's, there are places where that happens in religion, yes. There are places where that happens in government, yes. There are places where that happens in homes, among friends and families. It's not restricted to religious people or Christians. There are people who manipulate other people, and there are people who don't. And you have to kind of figure that out. That's your job. And if something's clear from God's word, then it's on you, whether you do it or not. It's not on the person that told you, because they told you. And we aren't here to control anybody's life, but to say the truth the best we understand it with all our flaws and faults. And that doesn't mean just me, us, we, the body of Christ. And each person in it, it's their job to find out where the authority is and follow that authority and walk in that authority. So that's the New Testament view of this. But anyway, back to our story. He gives his authority to, to and Haman cast lots, which in their word is poor, P-U-R, is lots. So Purim is the holiday. It's a plural of poor, casting of lots. Poor is lot, Purim is lots. And so they pick a date, the 13th of Adar, and it's going to be a long time away, months and months away. And so it gives them time to prepare, but it gives time for God to work too. And so, um, how easily he, this king is fallible and fickle, and instead of seeking God, of course. And Haman cast lots for this date. Uh, and, and chapter 4 through 10, uh, you know, Esther is pretty clueless to this. She's the new queen. I mean, she's doing a lot of shopping and, you know, decorated, doing her hair and, and waiting for the king to call her. And, uh, and she doesn't even know what's going on. Because she's inside the palace under all this protection, and uh, she's separated from the world. But yet Mordecai is grieving and tears his clothes, and the Jews and everybody in the town who isn't hateful is like, what's going on? 
Why are we doing this? Why is this being dictated? Because it goes everywhere, this edict. And so the famous part that you know of the story of Esther is, if you know this at all, is in verse 13. Um, Mordecai has sent word to Esther to tell her what's going on, saying, you got to go to the king and intercede for us. And Mordecai told them to answer Esther, who says, I can't go to the king. I can't go to the king because if I go to the king and he hasn't called me, uh, I can have my head chopped off. I only go to the king from our harem, from my place, or in, if the king calls you. And if you show up there without an invitation of the king, he could kill you. It doesn't mean automatically he would, but there's some real high level of, of chance. And he hasn't called me for 30 days. I haven't seen him. And Mordecai tells her in verse 13, Do not think in your heart that you will escape the king's pal- in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Listen, listen, listen. Don't read your own mind into the scripture. Read what the scripture says. He doesn't say, Esther, Sahadasa, you're our only hope. If you don't go before the king, we're lost. You're our only hope, Esther. It's you or no one. He does not say that. He says, Esther, without saying the name God, who is he referring to? God has made a promise to the Jewish people that they will not be annihilated. Not because they're better than anybody else, but because they picture God's love for everybody that we can enter into this promise that God gave to Israel so long ago. He says, Esther, deliverance will arise. Deliverance will arise. God is not restricted by what people do and what people don't do. So many of us are living in the horizontal about every single thing. I'm just not, I'm not at you. I'm saying humans, and you happen to be humans, and I am too. And we live on this level where it's everything everybody does is the biggest issue in our life. And it always is going to mess you up. It is not fantasy to put your trust in God. It is not fantasy to believe that he's bigger than your physical circumstances. He may not give you just what you want, but the place to be is in the center of his will, trusting him for everything. No, I don't do this perfectly, but I always know where to go. And I usually know, and then eventually know, when I've been missing it. Because I get a wake-up call. Don't you? You know, I know you didn't want your alarm to go off this morning, but if you don't wake up, you'll just sleep, and you'll miss. You know, and there's things you want. You're like, you, you, well, I'd like to miss work today. I'm so tired. But actually, you don't, because then you get fired. And there's really great things that you don't want to miss that you'll miss if you just sleep and don't have an alarm. Unless some of us, we wake up naturally, but forget about that. Go with the alarm analogy, okay? <laughs> stay with me, <laughs> and I'll stay there too. <laughs> so, so, so you know what? We need to be in the place that Mordecai is in because it's not written just so we can admire him. Oh, bravo, Mordecai. No, it's so we can say, Lord, make that my heart too. You know, God wants to use you, and God wants to use me in people's life, but he's not dependent upon us. He'll miss out if we don't do it. There are things that he wants to use you for, and he wants to use you. That you're the one. 
But in the whole scheme of things, God's going to get done his work. We're going to miss out. You, you miss out being, you know, I, we had to place our daughter in God's hands when her and her husband were going to move to Cambodia to the worst place there where there's millions of snakes, poisonous. And she had MS and, and, and has MS, and it uh, gets really hot in Cambodia, and, and heat can really affect MS. And she won't take the medicine that doesn't really necessarily work but can kind of work, you know, because it has side effects. And so... You know, that's, first of all, we didn't control her. She's of age and she's married. But number two, we didn't try to control her. Hello, parents. We didn't try to control her. That wasn't our job. Was she seeking the Lord? Was her husband seeking the Lord? Were they making a decision that was, in their eyes, the right decision? Yes. Were they, were they you know, the best place she could be is in the palm of God's hand. And that could be in Cambodia with snakes all around. Or it could be in the inner city of the USA. You don't foolishly go and do stupid things tempting God, no. But you don't say, I can control my life and I have to control everybody's life around me and we can never be anywhere where there's a trouble because that you can't do it. You can't protect yourself and you can't protect others to the degree that you want to. There's a proper protection for parents, of course. There's a proper protection among friends and all of that. But there's a place where it stops, and you let people be the people God made them to be. And you let people go in the place that God sent them to go. And a wise parent gets that and is working on it all the way through. I wasn't that wise <laughs> all the way through. But we really knew that when it, when it came time for them to make that decision to go someplace that scared us is that we were just to bathe it in prayer and encourage them in the Lord and not try to control them or stop them. And we're so thankful we did. Well, what, what if they would have died there? They'd be in heaven. What if they stayed here and got hit by a car and died? You know, are, you're so sure that it would all work out here in America? Your plan? <laughs> how, how many of your plans who are older have completely worked out the way you planned them? Yeah. So, you know, on the back of your bulletin, it's very interesting. I'll just read a few parts from Psalm 92 and Psalm 118. The Lord's deep thoughts that men don't understand. And it says in verse 7, and this verse is so powerful, when the wicked spring up like the grass and when all the workers of iniquity flourish, it's that they may be destroyed forever. But Lord, you're on high forever. You'll stop the enemy is basically the thought there. And then in Psalm 118, just in the middle, the Lord is on my side, verse 6, I will not fear what can man do to me. The Lord is, among, is for me among those who help me. Therefore, I shall see my desire on those who hate me. And this isn't to teach us to hate people. This is the Old Testament understanding of good versus evil and standing with God versus the sinful ways. So for us, we love our enemies. We're not here to hate people. But he's telling us it's better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It's better to trust in the Lord than put confidence in princes because the king was a king who was not doing the Jews good, and Haman was a prince in the country who was trying to destroy them, but God is God. And so Esther goes, says, okay, her famous words in chapter 4, go, gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan, in verse 16, for me, neither eat nor drink for three days or nights, my maids and I will fast likewise. What's implied here? Seeking God for, for his benevolent help. And so I will go to the king which is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. 
And so the story moves on, and then she just makes a banquet for the king and Haman. Why did she make a banquet? I don't know. Not only does she make a banquet, but the king goes to the banquet with Haman, who's really feeling great about it. And the king has asked her in verse 6, ask me what you want up to half the kingdom. No, come to the banquet. And he goes, okay, I'm here. What do you want? She goes, well, come to another banquet tomorrow night with Haman, and then I'll tell you what I really want. Now, Esther hasn't read the book of Esther. (laughs) She does not know what's going to happen that night. Two things are going to happen overnight. She doesn't know. She may just simply be scared to say what she has to say and just chokes. In her weakness, God's strength is made perfect. That could be why she didn't say anything. Because she's just, I need another day to get myself together. Because I'm afraid when I tell him I'm a Jew and we're going to be destroyed, he might like Haman better than me. I, I don't know. And neither does anybody. We just know that for some reason, she holds back. Sometimes when you hold back, God's holding you back. Because it's not the right time. There is that, too. But do we know why she did it? No. We know what happened overnight. Two things. Haman goes home, celebrating. But as he's going home, he sees Mordecai. Everybody's bowing to him as he walks by. Then he sees Mordecai standing over there. And it ruins his day. You know, when you're in bitterness, it doesn't matter how many people are nice to you, the bitterness is going to win in your life. And the bitterness wins in his life. And he goes home mad. He says, oh, it's a great day there, but I can't. None of this avails me. Verse 13. All of this blessing I have from the king and being his right-hand man doesn't avail me anything when I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the Jew's gate, at the king's gate. And then his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends said to him, well, watch, this is counsel from his friends and family. Now, I'm not saying that's always wrong, <laughs> that your friends and family give you guidance, but you, you still have a responsibility to take are you sure that's godly guidance? Or is it just what people think around you? You take a temperature of the room so that you can figure out what you're supposed to do from your friends, from your family, meaning your extended family. You know, if you and your family are seeking the Lord, that's your job, not everybody else to tell you. And so anyway, uh, which is not really the point here, but it is a point, a poignant thing. And Zeresh and his friends said, Ah, let a gallows be made 50 cubits high. It's about 75 feet. And in the morning, suggest to the king that Mordecai be hanged on it. Then go merrily with the king to the next banquet. And it pleased Haman, so he had a gallows made. But in chapter 6, a second thing happens. He's going to hang Mordecai in the morning, and then he's going to have a nice day and enjoy the banquet the next night. And, but, but, but the king can't sleep. Maybe Esther knew this and put something in his food to make it. No, I don't think so. She didn't cook anyway. <laughs> so the king can't sleep. And he says, bring me out the chronicles of our kingdom, the register of what's been happening in the kingdom, you know, uh, not, not the chronicles, the book of chronicles in the Bible. It's the chronicles of Persia, the histories of what's been going on in their legal system and what decisions were made. And sure enough, they come across a man named Mordecai exposed Big Than and Teresh, your servants, who were going to kill you. And he told the king about it to his servants, and they were executed. And he says, and what was done for this man, Mordecai, who he doesn't even know who he is? What was done for him? He goes, uh, nothing was done for him, sir. Uh, he can't sleep, and it's the early morning, and, he, and, 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 and Haman comes in in the early morning. This is just the best. This is the best. That's, I mean, maybe I'm mean-spirited, but the guy's evil. The guy's evil. 
And he's, he's asking for evil, and he's going to get evil, but it's going to come on his head instead of on the people who innocently he's going to destroy. And he comes in, and he's going to ask the king to make sure it's okay for him to kill Mordecai, and then they'll kill the rest of the Jews later. And the king says, who's out in the court waiting to see me? It's Haman. Good, send him in. Haman comes in with his plan, which he doesn't get to say. King says, Haman, Haman, just the man I want to see. What should the king do for the man whom he wants to honor in the kingdom? And Haman is thinking inside his head, who else but me would the king want to honor? Who would he want to honor above me? I'm this man. I'm going to the banquet with his wife. Even, even, his, even his queen likes me. Everybody likes me. <laughs> Except, so, oh, what should you do? Now, think of the arrogance of this. Think of the arrogance. You should, tell the, you should take the king's best horse. Have you ever heard like a king gives his best horse that's his riding horse to other people to ride? That anybody, I mean, if he did, would anybody ever ask for that? But he goes, do that. And take the king's royal robe, purple robe, and put it on this guy and a crown on his head. I mean, you know, if you were thinking clearly, you probably wouldn't say such a thing. But king's all for it. And have, your, have one of your top servants, your top officials, walk the horse with this man on it, with the cape and the crown and your beautiful horse, and everybody's, and it's all decked out in its finest array, you know, whatever they put on their horses. A Persian Arabian horse, obviously. And it wasn't a Mustang from Texas. Okay, so, so, and have that man say, as he walks all through the city, he uh, probably for several hours, Thus shall be done for the man whom the king desires to honor. And the king says, Haman, great idea. Go get Mordecai and put him on the horse and you do it. All day long, thus shall be done for the man who the king desires. And when he's all done, he runs home with his head covered. And remember these people that were his wife and his friends that were giving him advice about building the gallows? Verse 13 of chapter 6, when Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that happened to him, his wife and his wise men and his wife said, uh, Zeresh said to him, if Mordecai before whom you have begun to fall is of Jewish descent, you will not prevail against him, but will surely fall before him. Hey, where was this advice yesterday? Are you wondering that? Like, do they hate Haman and want him to go? No. Because here's what we know, is that they're part of the mix who are going to be destroyed because they're his friends, his counselors, and his sons are going to go too. They're all part of that. But I think between yesterday and today, when they saw him taking Mordecai out on the horse, they were getting the picture. What does that Jewish Bible say? Uh Uh-oh. I'm not saying it's exactly what happened. Something happened where they began to picture that maybe we can win against this guy. He can't bother us. That, that whole Jewish deal, that whole Bible thing, that's just silliness. We're, we're better than that. We're smarter than that. And now they're finding out, wow, it looks like it's coming true. In fact, it's, if, it's, if this is what's happening, there's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can do to stop this from happening the way it's going to unfold. So he's pretty desperate now and hopeless. And it's, but while they were still talking, the king's eunuchs came and brought him to the banquet. They go, come, it's time to go, Haman, for your big banquet. Oh, he goes in there, and Esther finally says to the king, there's a wicked man who's made a wicked plan to destroy my people. 
I'm Jewish, my people have been in edict, and he's had you sign a decree to destroy us, and it's that man right there, Haman. I mean, he's already feeling insecure, but now it's over. The king, who always acts rashly, who always acts rashly, doesn't act rashly for a minute. He steps out onto the balcony. How long does it take to say, destroy this guy? Right? But he steps out. He's thinking, and he is furious, but he's out there thinking because there's just another minute to go. And Haman falls on the bed thing where Esther's laying there pleading with her, and the king comes back in and says, oh, are you going to try to make it with my wife too? On top of everything else you've done? Because he's so angry at the guy, you know, he just looks at him attacking her or whatever. And his servants say, sir, the big high gallows that Haman made to hang Mordecai on is right out there. Why not hang him on his gallows? And he says, that's a great idea. Do it. And so... Haman takes Mordecai's place, and Mordecai takes Haman's place. And he becomes the advisor to the king. He says, what can I do? And they say, well, there's another problem as they go on in chapter 8. There's a problem. That's because you wrote with your signet ring a law. The law, the Medes, the per- and I'm paraphrasing some stuff that doesn't change. You may read words that say rescind the law or revoke the law, but in essence, it's this, I'll show you something in a minute that it's the, you can't just say this law no longer exists. He couldn't do that. What he could do is write a new law, and the new law says the Jews can defend themselves on the same day against anyone who comes against them. And the king's going to provide resources for the Jews to defend themselves. And anyone who wants to join the king and the Jews (laughs) in defending themselves can can join the Jews. And there's implied in this, by the way, have I mentioned that my wonderful queen, Esther, is Jewish? So which side would you like to be on? (laughs) Well, all the people that are truly hateful have already risen up. They've sprung up like the grass. They've been exposed. They can't change their mind. The hateful people that were willing to kill others just to get their property or out of some spiteful, hateful reason that was Haman's and other people with him or to get on his good side, just selfish, horrible self-interest that we grieve over. We don't sit here and say, we're really good people. I can't believe people do all those things. You know, there but for the grace of God go I. The people in Nazi Germany were people like you and me. And something happened that got them, and Satan works through humans to get people riled up and angry because man has a nature that's fallen. And you can get people to feel righteous in destroying other people. This is not what we're trying to talk about and be. We are to love our enemies, which means we need the Holy Spirit because you can't do it on your own. We're in the New Testament. This was a picture to us. Of what, but, but think about it. Man is capable. They were, they were people. There were people sitting in churches like our church. Okay, were all the churches teaching the Bible the way we teach the actual Bible? No, there was churches teaching, you know, nonsense and, and man's stuff, and those were easy people to pick off. But, folks, there was people sitting in real churches. There was people in Dietrich Bonhoeffer's church who probably left his church out of fear because he stood up against it, and even some of them were in the military and would follow the orders of their leader and destroy Jews and kill innocent people. Don't fool yourself. This is a picture of mankind's fallenness. 
It's not a picture of how bad the Germans were. It just happened to be those people that were under that influence at that time through those kind of situations. But it can happen to anybody. And if you say it can't happen to me, you're setting yourself up for a fall, the Bible says. I could never do that. Don't say that. Because you think more of yourself than you ought to. The Bible says, let him who thinks he stands, taste he, lest he fall. Say, you know, I thank God that I have this desire to be loving and kind and that I, 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 I hate bitterness and I want to be away from I thank God that he's shown me these things. Not, I can't believe other people do that. I would never do that. I, my natural bent is to say, I can't believe other people could do that. I mean, there is a part of us all that says, how do we do these horrible things? But remember, you're not as above it as you think you are. The way to stay above it is to stay close to God, humbly. So this, these, people are, these people are exposed, and he writes a new law. And I can't go through the whole story, but they, they, do a, they, do a, uh, they make a uh, celebration. They make a celebration of, of Purim because now a new law has been written in chapter 8, and in 8.15, I will read that to you. So Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal apparel of blue and white, with a great crown of gold and a garment of fine linen and purple, and the city of Shushan rejoiced and was glad. And the Jews had light and gladness, joy and honor. And in every province, every city, wherever the king's command, the decree came, the Jews had joy and gladness and a feast and a holiday. And then many of the people of the land became Jews because the fear of the Jews fell upon them. It doesn't necessarily, now there could be some people who just said, just like people do today, I'll become this because it's expedient. I'll become a a religious person, I'll go to the church so that people think I'm religious and don't bother me, or I'll get out of the church because then people will not bother me. There was those people. But there was also the people, and in the book of Acts chapter 5, when Ananias and Sapphira are struck down for their lying, it says great fear came upon the people, and some people stayed away from the church because they were just plain scared of the whole thing, and others were drawn to it. It doesn't say it in these exact words. The church grew and multiplied because people said, they really have God with them. And I do want the real God. The real God knows right and wrong. The real God, you can't play games with him. The real God isn't a figment of your imagination and fits into your philosophy of life. He's who he is, and you either get humbled before him and say, I'm going to serve the living, true God, or you make up your own God, and you can make up whatever you want. And everybody, most people will feel fine with that because they're making up their own God, too. But there were people that were humbled and brought to a point where they said, there's a real true God, and I need to follow him. And so this is what happens in the book. Now, there's a couple things I want to give you. And let's have the musicians come on up and get ready right now, because we're going to take communion. And Brad, you're going to grab somebody when we do to take these elements and pass them. We're not having everybody come up. I'm going to uh, 